This is HPR episode 1900 entitled 20 SSH Basics and is part of the series Privacy and Security. It is hosted by Ahuka and is about 17 minutes long. The summary is, in this week's tutorial explore the basics of making an SSH connection. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, this is Ahuka, welcoming you to Hacker Public Radio and another exciting episode in our security and privacy series, and we're in our mini-series on SSH. So we have done two shows about SSH. One was sort of an introduction about what SSH is about and how it came to be. Uh, then we did one on how to set up a home server so you can experiment. So I'm going to assume that you have followed along so far. That will make it a little easier to keep up with all of this. And we want to talk about the just the basics of making a connection uh, and how you do that. So as we saw in the introductory tutorial, SSH uses the client-server model. Now, technically, a server is just the machine you're connecting to. And there's no reason in principle it could not be another desktop, a laptop, or even a telephone if it has the appropriate software. And in the previous tutorial, we showed how you can easily install and set up an SSH server on your home network using another computer or a Raspberry Pi so that you can experiment with these commands. The model really reduces to you as the client and the other machine as the server. As with all internet connections, there are standards and protocols involved. The original Telnet communicated over TCP, that's uh, Transmission Control Protocol, through port 23. Because SSH was conceived as a replacement, it used the same TCP protocols and was assigned the adjacent port number of 22. Now, this is the standard, but it is not set in stone. Indeed, one of the ways you can add to security is to use a non-standard port. Now, this is something that the server has to be configured to do. All right? It's up to the server to use a different port, because the server has a daemon that is listening, and it's going to listen to whichever port it's uh, instructed to, and we talked about that last time uh, when we talked about configuring your server. Um, so... The server administrator, whoever that would be, if you're doing this at home, then I presume you are the server administrator, uh, would configure the daemon to listen to an alternate port such as 16180, just to get a five-digit number at random, and then it would listen there for SSH traffic and then communicate this to the potential clients. Uh, this is a good thing to know if you're using SSH to log into a remote server that you administer. 
For example, you may have a server co-located in a data center or a virtual private server that you control and administer. If a vulnerability in the SSH protocol were to be discovered, you can bet that the bad guys would immediately start to hammer on port 22 of every IP address on the Internet looking to take advantage. But if your server does this on a non-standard port, it gives you a little bit more protection. Still, if you're connecting to a server that you do not control, you probably will connect to port 22 uh, unless they give you specific instructions otherwise. And chances are your client software is already configured to do that by default. Now, how does it work? Well, to begin with, all SSH connections are initiated by the client. You, as the client, are going to the server and asking, please, sir, may I have a shell connection? And, as we said, you'll generally do this on port 22. The server will have a daemon listening to that port, and it should respond to your request. If you have the same account name on both your client and the server, you can just log into the server. If the account names are different, then you should put in your account name. So, here's some examples. Uh, and we're doing this uh, in a terminal, um, and that's really the best way to get to understand this stuff. So, the first example, just the command is ssh space, and then the IP address. So, if you're doing it on a home network, it might be something like 192.168.1.24. Uh, I think I've got a machine somewhere on my network with that address. Uh, now, another example. Instead of using the IP address, you could use the server name. Uh, now, that has to be something that is in your host's file or uh, that DNS is going to know how to debug. Again, if it's on your home network, uh, you might want to have a host's file that has all of this information. Uh, otherwise, you could run into problems. But here's the example, ssh space myserver.host.com. Um, now, either of those work if your account name is the same uh, on the server as it is on your local client. Now, at home, that's generally what I run into because I use the same login name for different machines. If they're different, you could speed things along by adding the account name. So here's another example, ssh underscore fred at myserver.host.com. Now, we talked about uh, connecting to a different port. Now, if you need to do that, there is a switch that uh, is part of the SSH command. Uh, it's a dash P switch. And so if you wanted to do that, let's assume that the server was configured to listen to port 16180. Then the command would be SSH space dash P space 16180 space, and then put in either the IP address or the server name, um, you know, using any of the examples we've already talked about. Now, the server should then send back to your client the protocol version, which should be SSH 2.0. If your client also supports SSH 2.0, the connection proceeds. Otherwise, the connection is dropped. All modern clients support SSH 2.0, however. If you really want to dive into the details, you can start with RFC 4253, which is written by the previously mentioned Tatu Yulonen, uh, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. 
If you want to see everything going on, use the dash V switch with the SSH command to turn on verbose mode. In fact, you should probably use the dash V switch at least a few times just to see what is going on. This will show you all the communication going on between your client and the server. I, I noticed, for instance, that in my recent version of Kubuntu, it leaves out a lot of the stuff going on. It just suppresses it, but, you know, if you want to see it, put in that switch. Okay, then the binary packet protocol kicks in. This specifies each of the fields in the packet sent using SSH. If you need full details, consult RFC 4253 mentioned previously. Uh, this is something you can probably skip if you're not going to be writing your own client. Next is the server's turn to identify itself, which it does by transmitting its public key. If this is your first time attempting to log into the server, you will get a message that says, the authenticity of host myserver.host.com can't be established. The RSA key fingerprint is, and then it will give you a bunch of hexadecimal, two-digit hexadecimal numbers, um, and that's the fingerprint of the key. And then it says, are you sure you want to continue connecting, yes or no? Now, if this is the first time you've tried to connect, you don't know for sure if this is really the server you want. This is the potential danger point in all of this. This is where a man-in-the-middle attack could take place. So, for instance, imagine, again, you're sitting in a coffee shop, public Wi-Fi, or an airport terminal or wherever, and you think, ah, I'm going to SSH into a server here, and uh, you, you get back the message, the authenticity can't be established, here's the fingerprint. Do you just say yes? Um, how do you know that someone in that coffee shop or airport terminal or wherever isn't sitting there with a, a nice little packet sniffer? And, and uh, you know, if you watch Hack 5, and I do, uh, you're going to see there's a lot of interesting ways of, um, of intercepting and uh, spoofing so that you can basically... Uh, get a, a man in the middle is going to intercept your request and send back something that says, oh, yeah, I'm that server you're looking for. You can trust me. And they'll give you their key. And then, you know, you're going to give your login and, and all of that. It's a danger. All right. Uh, now, it only happens the first time you connect with this particular machine because what happens is, if you say yes, you want to continue connecting, it takes that uh, public key from the server and stores it in something called a known hosts file. Now, on a Linux machine, this is usually found in your home directory. So, slash home, then slash your username, slash dot SSH. And then in that directory, there's a file called known underscore hosts. Um, now, other systems may have it in other places. Windows, it might be in something like your user profile name, backslash SSH or backslash dot SSH. I've seen both of those mentioned. Uh, I don't know a lot about the Windows side of this. Um, 
and this is something you need you need to go through with each machine that you connect uh, to this server, you're going to have to get that key and store it in the known hosts file. Now, once it's stored in there, um, you know, from then on, you know, if you went and, and attempted to log in and got a different key, you'd get a uh, warning about that. Um, so, um, what if you take a look at that, it's a text file, you can open it up, uh, and you will see a number of things you'll you'll see the um, basically a, a, a base 64 style um, mess that looks that is essentially the public key you know so that's you know upper and lowercase letters numbers symbols all over the place um, and if you take a look at the uh, fingerprint uh, you will see then and what I see on mine is ECDSA, and that is the encryption standard. That's elliptical curve uh, DSA. Um, then dash SHA-2. Uh, so that tells me something about the uh, encryption standard. And then NISTP-256. Um, so that's... Uh, that is what's used to create that uh, encrypted secure connection so so what's happening here um there's a weakness because you're accepting a key on the first login how do you prevent that your login attempt got the fingerprint returned to you so that's the key to this if you will pardon the pun you probably don't want to post it publicly on an unsecured website for instance since the bad guys might figure out a way to spoof it and email carries the same risk in a corporate environment, you might post it on an encrypted website behind the firewall and require the employees to use their credentials to access it or even have the IT department configure this for all users. The point is that the security of the connection depends on the key. And if a man in the middle can get you to accept a bad key, they own you after that. Now, the next step depends on whether you're using SSH version 1 or SSH version 2. Uh, since the vulnerability in SSH version 1 was found long ago in Internet time, you should probably question what is happening if you see it used today. SSH version 2 was adopted in 2006, which makes it comparatively old and stable. Now, as Michael W. Lucas puts it in his book, SSH Mastery, and I quote, SSH version 1 permits man-in-the-middle attacks and session hijacking, if someone insists on using SSH1, practice saying, I told you so. Now, his book is excellent. The ebook is only 10 bucks. It's worth every cent. In particular, if you need to set up an SSH server, which I won't really cover in this kind of detail, this book is mandatory reading, I would say. Now, among the changes introduced in SSH version 2 are improved encryption standards, uh, including triple DES and AES, uh, public key certification for clients, we're going to get to that uh, very quickly here. Uh, the use of sound cryptographic message authentication code algorithms. Um, SSH version 1 was monolithic, meaning that all the protocols needed for encryption, authentic authentications, etc. were part of a single large protocol built into SSH version 1. In SSH version 2, each protocol is split out into its own and defined in a separate RFC. 
such as the transport layer protocol, the connection protocol, and the authentication protocol. Now, I, I think SSH's version 1 is sufficiently obsolete that I'm not really going to dig into it. So let's just focus on version 2. So with version 2, once you've accepted the public key of the server, it is up to you as the client to respond. You do this by first generating a symmetric key called the session key, which will be used to encrypt all traffic. Remember from our previous tutorials that asymmetric key pairs carry a very large computational overhead, so they are generally used only to set up a connection and exchange the symmetric key. The client creates this key, then using Diffie-Hellman SHA-1 key exchange sends it back to the server. Note, there is a provision in the protocol for a certificate authority to attest to the validity of the public keys used. Uh, this would help immensely in preventing the man-in-the-middle attack you were vulnerable to at your first connection, since the CA, the certificate authority, would give you content, confidence in the ability of your server's public key. But not all servers use this at present, in part because certificates are expensive. And by the way, we discussed all of this in much more detail when we were looking at uh, T, uh, SSL and TLS uh, certificates and talked about how they try and deal with that problem. And I, I think we'll get there eventually, but um, you know, right now we're just not where we need to be. Now, we're not done yet. Uh, you should only have access to the server in accordance with the rights you were given when your account was created. Uh, and that means that you need to authenticate. And so what I want to do in the next tutorial is start looking at uh, using keys to authenticate. Uh, and so with that, this is Ahuka for Hacker Public Radio um, signing off and reminding everyone, as always, to support free software. Bye-bye. <laughs>